0: Listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Robinson, and today's episode is a recording from a webinar we held on January 11th, 2024. Rachel Washburn is the moderator for this webinar, and I'll have her begin the conversation.
1: Excited to begin today's discussion, our first webinar of 2024. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined by General Bob Ashley and General Masson Robinson, as well as Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy today to discuss uh, global risk and our outlook for 2024. This webinar is brought to you by Academy's Vets ETF, a veteran impact ETF focused on providing market-based returns while investing in mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities that support veterans. Veterans, Vets with a Z. Invest in residential mortgage loans to active duty service members and veterans as well as loans to veteran owned small businesses. To learn more, please visit academyetfs.com or contact your broker. The Academy Vets ETF is offered by Academy Asset Management, the asset management affiliate of Academy Securities, a registered broker dealer. For those who are uh, unfamiliar with Academy's webinars. We will start off with a sort of broad discussion of geopolitical risk and our outlook for the year, but we really want to encourage a lot of engagement throughout this discussion. So after our sort of prepared remarks, we're going to open up Q&A to the audience. You'll see the Q&A icon at the bottom of the screen, and at any time during the discussion you have any questions, please type it there. We'll be sure to address them during the conversation. So to begin, let's start off with the sort of uh, impending elections in Taiwan. Obviously China, Taiwan, a top of mind topic for our team over the last few years with a sort of um, inflection point coming in the weekend. So let's start there. Um, General Robson with you. Can you tell us how you view the upcoming elections and how they have the potential to change the dynamic in the region and, (laughs) excuse me, between the U.S. and China?
2: Yeah, clearly if a one China candidate wins, uh, that will change the the metrics on <clears throat> how the U.S. approaches it. And on the other hand, if if a sovereignty candidate wins, then that will certainly change China's metric on it. I think it's likely that you'll see either a moderate or a sovereign uh, Taiwan candidate that wins. But all bets are off when it comes to elections uh, in places like, like Taiwan. There's no doubt that China will attempt to influence uh, where they can. So it's going to be fascinating to watch.
1: General
3: Ashley, your point of view? Yeah, so you've got uh, a pretty close race right now. I think the the DPP that I think it's the Democratic People's Party. the The current uh, deputy is the candidate who was going to replace Sai. Um, the last thing I saw that it's probably a slight, maybe it's in the 52-53, kind of favoring the existing regime to stay in place. This would be, I think, the third time the party has uh, carried on. Um, Clearly, that's not the outcome China is looking for. But I wouldn't, you know, back to Madison's comment, you're not going to see any great sea change, but you may see just a slight in the near term, a bit of an up ramp of pressure from the mainland from China, just to send that signal back to the new administration, if in fact, the DPP uh, is who wins the elections, and those elections are uh, imminent. They're Saturday.
2: It'll also be interesting, uh, Rachel, to see what neighboring countries say post-election. Because for the first time, we we have uh, much more involvement from Japan, from India, uh, from Vietnam, from across the spectrum uh, in what's going on with China and Taiwan.
3: Yeah, and just to kind of add on to that, it's always interesting, like when, in, when in, you know, like let's say, when a U.S. president is elected, you have these series of phone calls, you know, Congratulations, all that stuff. And clearly in um, our last administration, some calls that weren't weren't made. So it'll be interesting to see because I would imagine most of the Indo-Pacific nations, they they kind of want to just stay in the middle. Right. They don't want to show favoritism toward mainland necessarily or toward whoever you know ascends to the, the presidency in Taiwan. So it, it'd probably be relatively quiet. There may be some congratulations. But it may be behind closed doors where you don't see a lot of public disclosure, uh, which which kind of shows their hand in terms of their sentiment toward uh, the party that's either coming in, if it's new uh, or if it's different.
1: Yeah, I think messaging around this election will be really important, obviously messaging, whether that be in the conventional sense or in the uh, sort of exerting military power through any sort of drills post-election it'll be very very interesting to see how it's handled um do you expect the based off of who wins the election that the DPP does indeed um, come through for their messaging to become more or less aggressive
2: you mean China's
1: um both
2: yeah I, I, what I don't see is China doing military action. Uh, on as a result of this. I mean, I think it's, as Bob said, the status quo. Uh, I think there will certainly be rhetoric that they will try to do that will uh, sway not just uh, Taiwanese emotion, but that will solidify uh, China's internal messaging on why it's important and the message that, that will be sent there and, and to neighbors on why China is, is a, a force to be reckoned with and that they can't be ignored is, is certainly what they're going to want to try to do. They've elevated themselves over the last couple of years as sort of an international brinksmanship and negotiator and peacemaker, and, uh, which has been kind of a new step for them. You know, They've always been involved with third world countries, but not really at the table trying to lead the discussion on brokering deals like Russia, Ukraine, and, and so forth.
1: And um, Peter, curious how you feel about the incoming ele- upcoming elections and how they're uh, being assessed and evaluated by the marketplace.
4: You know, one to me, it's just a good reminder that although the military activity gets the most attention, that there's probably just a long process in place meant to try and push Taiwan into China's hands. You know, I I, I keep thinking we're going to wind up Questioning what exactly even we mean by one country, two systems as time goes on, because it's kind of hard to put together what exactly you mean by one country, two systems. If one country wants to really be one country, um, and you, I spent a bunch of time on Chat GPT and AI trying to figure some of these answers out, and particularly what percentage of the world refers to it as Taiwan or Taipei, and I kept getting back the same sort of answer from AI: most people call it Taiwan. But if you want to be careful with China, you refer to it as Taipei. So I think everyone's living in this. And I think this is just a reminder that whatever happens this weekend, there's still an effort in part of China to force various ways Taiwan into its ecosystem much more fully.
3: And there's another piece of that, you know, the dynamic is in it and it grows over the years of the people that more affiliate themselves with being Taiwanese as opposed to being Chinese, um, but the other, you know, the other part of this is like, you know, and Peter said, I don't think you're going to see any perturbations in the market. Uh, things will continue. Um, nations that may come out if it is the DPP to be, you know, vocal and advocates could be, you know, South Korea, Japan, um, but even they may be somewhat metered in their uh, their conversations because they still have to have a, a relationship with China and they have a robust economic relationship with China.
2: And and I'd add to what Bob said that China has still got their internal struggles economically, uh, number of children, the workforce. Uh, they're definitely a bifurcated society. Um, so they they have a significant internal messaging challenge, that, uh, not just to get support for a one China, but to maintain the status quo and not let their economy sort of go down the tubes in the process.
3: Yeah, this will this will be a really really difficult year for Xi from an internal standpoint, because if you ever, you know, having been in the intelligence community, somebody says, what's what's any autocrat's biggest threat is a popular uprising. And so that's mm-hmm. Putin's threat, that's Kim Jong-un's threat and, you know, the, uh, DPRK, that is the Ayatollah and the leadership in Iran, that is she's biggest fear is a popular uprising. And you see part of that, in how they really kind of instrument the camera systems and everything, and the ability to watch the population but you know I'd, I'd ask Peter because you really understand the economics pieces of it but from a real estate standpoint that market kind of collapsed. they're going through a period of deflation where you know the local you know, Chinese populace is not looking to spend they're looking to save for fear of what's happening with the economy. the growth is not what it's uh, meant to be or it was anticipated to be um, you know direct investment is, is tapering down. Even though there's still a very robust uh, Chinese, you know, integration in the global economy, there's a lot of things that are slowing down that will create pressure on Xi. Uh, even though he really has consolidated, you know, his, his base is pretty strong, that would have to be a significant perturbation. But, you know, Peter, your thoughts on some of the economics?
4: Yeah, and this really feeds into our, our theme for almost last year has been this look <clears throat> for China to shift from what we've been calling a "made in China" strategy to made by China. And China was manufacturing a lot of, quote unquote, our goods for us to then sell. That's been going away as companies are pulling back and not using China as a manufacturing base. I think China never had the success of turning their citizens into consumers, certainly not to the scale that the US has ever had. And that's very problematic now, given that the real estate market, most people's largest assets in trouble. So I think domestically, their economy is struggling. Their traditional source of you know income is struggling so I, that is why i see them turning more and more to trying to sell their brands globally so they take the brands that they've been manufacturing over the past decade and they had tremendous amounts of success with huawei and you're starting to see some efforts with byd which is their ev maker they've set up factories in brazil um, most importantly i think and this is a bit tricky but um they sold more cars than tesla more evs than tesla last quarter now that was still heavily skewed towards their chinese sale but their international sales are growing. So I think that's the only way out for China really is to take their brands, their manufacturing that they control and sell those brands globally and prop that up. Okay. To me, that's their only outlet and you're seeing signs of them doing it. I think they're going to work hard with these nations that you already mentioned. They've already established a lot of dialogue in the past with um, the emerging markets countries. I think they're trying to get closer and closer to them And what they want to do from my perspective, and again, we're seeing signs of this, is they want uh, emerging markets countries to realize they can get goods and services in yuan, and they can maybe get them cheaper than they can in dollars from the U.S. by buying Chinese brands. So I think that's going to be the battlefront on the economic side is China trying to transition to selling their brands globally. And it's very natural. It's, you know, I was watching Bloomberg TV about a month ago and Mercedes CEO was on talking about some of the issues they're facing with China. But he did point out, and I think rightfully so, at one time, Mercedes was a German car manufacturer that sold primarily in Germany. So it's natural for things to expand. So I think that's what I'm looking for. And when I look at kind of the economic morass they're in, that's the only way out that I really see for them is taking their brands, selling them globally so they can support their own production base. And I think that's something we're going to have to deal with economically. It changes it. And, you know, you're seeing... Some of the products they're producing are getting more and more sophisticated more and more interesting. And the price points could be right for certain
2: parts of the world. And to tag on to that, uh, when you compare that to what China, uh, what Taiwan's economy is, there, there is a gap there because Taiwan is is actually advancing more where China's declined. Yeah.
1: And if I may, I you know, we brought this up before, I think. A lot of our team believes that the economic uncertainty and some of the challenges that China is facing is one of the reasons why maybe they would not pursue an aggressive military action. But of course, history shows us that oftentimes autocrats will use warfare as a unifying sort of act of desperation. Is there a turning point or a threshold where you could see the challenges internal to China being a forcing mechanism for some sort of military action
3: yeah I mean I don't think we're hit it, we're at that point now and, and you bring on some of the economic stresses so you know we we look at you know Chinese how they think about warfare they think about warfare in a legal sense they think about it in information psychological different ways it's not always just traditional kinetic military. And and as I look at the dynamics that are happening globally across a number of countries, you know, we talk about multipolar, unipolar, kind of where we are with the global framework. I would say you've got really kind of three polarities that are developing. One of those is the security polarity, which has always been a U.S. lead and it still is. And China's, you know, closing the gap in that one. The other is economics is really where China leads. And the last one is in technology. So but let me go back to the economics. I think the thing that's interesting to watch is, The U.S. policy, and we'll use semiconductors, for example, you know, we're trying to make sure that we um, regulate things that are um, that feed weapon systems or national security that put it at risk in terms of what's in the market. And so semiconductors is a big piece of that. Um, But the Chinese obviously um, play a key role in that. But the other part is, you know, Peter talked about electric vehicles. You know, if you look at rare earth minerals and things along those lines, China does refinement for like 90% of rare earth minerals minerals globally. So just imagine what that would mean. Should they close out those markets, limit that production? So there's, there's an interesting economic dynamic. We'll call it a dance, if you will, with the U.S. and the West and China in terms of how do we continue to have these markets operate you know, made by China now. For you know Peter's comments, to operate globally but not become a you know a binary. We start closing markets off based on national security. So that'll be a very interesting dynamic to, dynamic to watch. You know, because <clears throat> part of that is the comment about de-risking. How do we de-risk supply chains? You know, from a from a rare earth mineral standpoint, is yet is just one of those areas.
2: You know, I, I would tag onto that that China again. It has to be fresh on their mind what they saw happen to, to Russia. Russia goes into Ukraine and overnight the entire world uh, pivots against them and sanctions. If, if that happened to China, it would certainly have a significant economic uh, downside for them. So I just have a hard time seeing them, like Bob said, you know, doing a kinetic invasion at this point. But I certainly agree with Bob that it would be all, all kinds of other uh, mechanisms that they wage war with. Um, and it's definitely to their disadvantage to destroy Taiwan, given the super chip capability that Taiwan has, because uh, that affects them as much as it affects the rest of the world.
3: You know, and if there were a conflict, I would imagine that that you know T or the the Chinese semiconductor manufacturing company would probably not exist in its curtain curtain you know uh, capacity. But the other part, even about that one, that that company even though they produce the bulk of the semiconductors, the machining, right, that actually produces the assembly line for everything that actually, that they produce is machining that's done in some of the Scandinavian countries, it's done in the U.S. So even that is not just germane to the island of Taiwan. So lots of dynamics that are that are in play there.
2: And I'm sure China's been watching what Russia's did as well to build on those comments. And the fact that Russia's... Um... Invasion in Ukraine is is the biggest problem they've had is the ability to resupply, the ability to maintenance, the ability to maintain the momentum. Uh, I mean that's tough for the tyranny of distance that Russia has to close. It's even tougher when it's over water uh, instead of being over land. So China China would definitely have their work cut out for them if this if any invasion in Taiwan wasn't an immediate victory uh, within the first week or so. A protracted war would be. Really, really tough for them to support. And I think Taiwan is uh, enormously more capable of defending their island than, than Ukraine is defending their country and their borders.
3: And, you know, and the other dynamic, the takeaway from Ukraine, I'm sorry, Peter, I'll come back to you just a second, is, you know, the, the lesson he's learning is, OK, how much can I be self-sufficient? Mm-hmm. How much can I just take everything inside, you know, the the nations that I have a relationship with? And I know that won't, it won't be broken due to conflict, and that's a lot of the Pacific nations. How much of this can I become self-sustaining? And I think that's, you know, she has to rationalize that in his mind that you can't be self-sustaining. <clears throat> There's just too much integration in the global market. I'm sorry, Peter.
4: No, actually that feeds into a little bit of what I've been thinking. So, you know, I've taken Taiwan invasion off the table. That's not what I'm spending much time worrying about at this point, given all the feedback we've had from... What I have been thinking more and more, Ben, and it even goes back, it was probably three or four years ago We did uh, one of these, and I think we were probably more optimistic on ways we can work with China. And at that time, there had been some talk, well, maybe China can help patrol the seas globally for trade. And that would be a great stepping stone to kind of fixing the relation. And now, if anything, I see moving away from that. And one of the risks that keeps kind of popping up is what if the U.S. is unwilling to spend the money to protect this all foreign trade? What if we start getting pushed out of the region where China has built out the South China Sea Islands? They are you know, set up deals with the Solomon Island chain, is there some risk that they start interfering with a way that they kind of break up global shipping a little bit differently, and they start controlling that region, which would come in, maybe they can be self-dependent in a somewhat defined region. So kind of playing with that. And at the other extreme, is there a country or someplace, whether it's Pakistan, somewhere where they have some friction that they might escalate something militarily, where it wouldn't face the repercussions of invading a Taiwan globally potentially, but at the same time would give them that ability to test their military, see how it functions in some real situation.
3: Yeah, because that's the other big takeaway is you know, and I want to say don't say paper tiger, paper dragon. Um, you know, the last time they had a conflict was in seventy nine against the Vietnamese, and they didn't perform very well. Um, you know, we've had a number of conflicts with our military over the last, and we'll go, we'll start with Desert Shield, Desert Storm uh, through the present conflict. So there's got to be a lot of questions that she has about the ability of his military. Matter of fact, he's actually gone through a recent purge, fired um, yeah. a number of journals because of concerns over their performance and their ability to manage some of their, you know, weapons programs as well. But the other part of the course of diplomacy that is, you know, potentially an outcome of this is, you know, putting pressure on regional nations to align with them, you know, pick your subject, uh, because a lot of times you'll, you know, and China's very much says, hey, look, the U.S. is not a Pacific power, that this is our backyard, you know, f- to the Pacific nations. And there's a lot of truth in the in the Pacific nations don't want to be put in a position where they have to choose between China or the West or the U.S. Peter, I'm going to uh,
1: pull off um, some of the topics that you discussed on especially around shipping um, to move out of the China Taiwan topic into the rising tension with Iran and how that is impacting the sort of global order of logistics um as I you know was reading our around the world from December we obviously focused a lot on the um attacks on shipping and the change of uh you know private companies not using, those straits um, for fear of you know, the risk that is inherent with this escalating tension. And you know, just thinking about our coalition, the United States coalition that is charged with essentially protecting the supply chain around the world, and to your point, like maybe China can be brought into that fold, not just in their region, but maybe globally, if they're trying to exert global influence. But do you wanna take a moment to discuss what's happening in the Gulf region um, as it relates to Iran and some of the increased uh, attacks by Houthi rebels. So, um, General Robson, we'll give the floor to you first.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's certainly going to test uh, the U.S. Uh, national strategy. We, we put a pretty big stake in the ground over keeping key shipping lanes and those key choke points free. Um, and when the babel Mandeb Strait on the South of the Red Sea and the Suez the North of the Red Sea become threatened, uh there's just I don't see any way the US is going to stand by and let that happen uh and and accept the 30-day transit around the, the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and I think the world isn't gonna let that happen either. So it's gonna stretch Iran uh to continue to do that. And it's gonna, I think, put them in a in a tough position, uh, because they don't control the Houthis, but they definitely leverage the Houthis. And and that can, you know, once you release um an insurgent force like that, sometimes it's hard to reel them back in and really control them. But there's no doubt that the the, the U.S. and the international community has the ability uh, to defend those straits and to create safe passage. Um, it's just, of course, about ugly against before you do it.
3: And just to add on to that, you know, Emerson um, made the comment that the, the Houthis in Yemen are a proxy to a degree, but they are an independent actor. So Iran does not control all the strings in what they do. Um, the question now for the administration is a, a policy one of, are we going to ratchet up uh, <clears throat> what we're going to do militarily to actually go after infrastructure on in Yemen proper uh, to go after the Houthis, which I think is no doubt that is a conversation that's being uh, had right now. But I don't necessarily see that causing an escalation in terms of what Iran may do, Um, because Iran doesn't want to be directly involved in the U.S. in any kind of a conflict. And so it's very easy, I think, for this to be looked at. Um, Again, never say never, somewhat isolated between the Houthis and whatever maritime capabilities that are operating in that region. So I think the U.S. or whatever the coalition that would strike Houthi targets in Yemen proper, I think the Iranians at that point go, "Eh, that's a shame, but they're not going to come to the rescue.
2: And keep, keep in mind to add to what Bob's saying that, you know, when we're talking about deterrence, deterrence is really a combination of our capability and our will to use our capability. And So we've got the capability, but th- the key component here is how the administration leverages the fact that we have the will to use it that then turns that capability into a potential deterrent uh, without overstepping what they think is more than they really want to go down the road on, particularly in an election year. So it's a tough balance for the administration to try to walk here, keeping these shipping lanes over and and not overreacting so that it creates a a push, a flashback or a pushback.
1: Yeah. Peter?
2: Yeah. You know, one thing, I'm not quite pushing back, but I would go
4: within a week of the conflict, we were already talking about potential risk to the shipping. And we are already seeing, even under the status quo, that people were getting Mm -hmm. uncomfortable shipping there. This was before the attacks just because even if it's a low probability event that something happens, two to 3%, 4% chance, and it happens to be your ship that's hit, it's very dangerous. So it's kind of like a form of insurance. So I think, you know, people were already starting to move things away at the time. I think there was a little bit of excess shipping capacity. So basically if ships were say at 85% capacity, that extra 15 days just means you wind up filling up the ship. So it was kind of a little bit more balanced, but I think some of that's going to continue. And for a lot of people, it's very still fresh in their mind when the evergreen tanker got stuck in the Suez Canal completely by accident, but you saw kind of how fragile that canal is. It's a very narrow ditch. Um, So if someone wanted to do something, so I think even it's going to be difficult to clean this up to the point that everyone's comfortable going through it and it's impacting all shipping. I think you're going to start seeing the impacts later in the first quarter, early second quarter. From a market standpoint, no one wanted the shipments that were coming in for the holiday season. Because there was some excess supply, I don't think you're gonna see massive price increases into the Q1, but as we go later into Q1, early into Q2, I think this becomes an issue. And it certainly doesn't help that the Panama Canal has its own problems, nothing to do with this. Um, And then finally, and this is something that's just starting to poke up a little bit more and more in conversation, piracy is supposedly on the rise across the globe. And some of these places that people are having to detour have their own piracy issues. So um, again, kind of coming back, who's patrolling the seas, who's making it safe to trade? And are we just going to see more and more, to me, this is further encouragement to when we talked about um, changing supply chains, we always brought up proximity. So we wanted closeness and proximity is one of those. and. I think people, as they have the opportunity, where are we going to build something out? Where are we going to put our plant? Are going to look much more closely than they ever have at shipping lanes, how well protected they are, how much they can be influenced. And that's, I think, going to change that global economy. And I continue to believe Mexico's a big beneficiary, but South America should be a pivot, you know, key area of focus for the US because that area is much more in control of ours. It's in our backyard and it's not constrained in the way some of these others. So I think that's kind of thinking is gonna permeate how people plan their businesses going forward.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting um, point of view and definitely on theme with you know kind of what we've been discussing for the last couple of years, given all the conflict around the world. I wanna stay in the region and discuss the um, war in Gaza and how that has evolved over the last three months, um, especially with some of the recent events in the gulf uh region uh really want to focus on who in the region is influencing outcomes um where we think the next you know two to three to four weeks of um conflict how that's going to evolve and you know is there a way forward to a peaceful resolution um so general uh, ashley want to start with you
3: yeah that's not a that's a- Clearly, there's a lot of players. And so, if I were to start listing, okay, who's involved in this? Because we always talk about the conflict between Israel and Hamas. So, we have Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran. And then you kind of alluded to, okay, who is having conversations, broker discussions, Jordan, Egypt, UAE, Saudi Arabia. And I haven't even got into the Western nations yet. Um, you know, I think you're at a point now with the Israeli Defense Force where there, I don't, it's not cleaning up operations, but major strikes are going to start to taper off as they're going to start looking more at the humanitarian assistance. How do they reset the population, which is a huge problem right now because they've been displaced? How do they account for the humanitarian relief and aid? And then how do they systematically start going through the tunnels, what's been referred to as the metro? You know, They've eliminated a lot of the, the foot soldiers, so to speak, from Hamas, but there's still probably significant numbers that they have to address and so they're working on that. But the other part is there's a very deliberate um, Israeli campaign that is global in nature that's looking at where the leadership is. Now, we've seen strikes um, already in, uh, uh, in Syria, strikes in Lebanon that's gone after leadership. Uh, from an Iranian standpoint, I think the Iranians are still happy to work through their proxies. They're not going to see major involvement, but they're going to continue to provide shipment, arms, guidance. Uh, you've already seen the, uh, the Israelis step up the attacks into Syria. Because there is a supply chain that goes through Iran, through Iraq, through Syria, and makes its way into the Levant, into Lebanon, and it makes its way into Lebanese Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, as well as Hamas. And so you're going to see the Israelis looking at that supply chain and be more aggressive. The Israelis will operate on their own pace, and they will certain you know continue to to prosecute the war as they see fit. There will be a lot of international pressure. Um, Matter of fact, we saw that uh, South Africa has already gone to the International Criminal Court of Justice uh, with the genocide claim that uh, that's being filed in the process of ongoing right now. But the Israelis aren't leaving Gaza anytime soon. So part of the discussions are what's the long term solution? Is it the Palestinian Authority? Is there some element which doesn't have a lot of credibility uh, to come in? But there's going to be some joint cohabitation with the Israelis for a, you know, for a good part of 2024, before they start moving toward what something is in a more long-term transition or sustained. Um, you know, Ultimately, the Saudis are saying it's the two-state solution. That's what's going to get you an enduring uh, peace and a, a settlement. The Israelis aren't going to, I don't think, in entertaining those discussions, at least not for another four to six months, uh, if ever, at least not in this current administration. So the other thing is you have to look at what are the Israeli Uh, Politics that are playing right now between Netanyahu and really a far right administration, and how that's being sorted out, and will this government survive? Will this government get displaced? And if they bring in a more moderate, you know, government, what does that mean for those talks and negotiations? So there's, I mean, it's kind of a Rubik's cube, right? You you can reset security in the context of trying to eliminate Hamas, but that's like solving for the green side, right? In this case, the complexity here is. You have to solve the entire Rubik's cube for long-term security, and a lot of what's happened over the last twenty years, when uh, the Israelis have reset deterrence, kind of you know mowed the grass, so to speak, is they've solved for one side of the Uber, you know uh, Rubik's cube, and it's much more complicated. And the level of violence from Hamas from seven October has really brought the international community back to bear to look at this, uh, but. Um, we're going to, I think we're in for a lot of the, you know, similar kinds of actions over the next four to six months before we really get to a window. Even the Saudis, for example, they want to have a long-term relationship with the Israelis. They want stability. The regional powers want stability. The Chinese want stability. Russia, maybe not so much. They like the distraction. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just a lot of things in play right now.
2: But the good news is, and I agree with everything Bob said, that is it Russia? Typically, would be part of that that group that Bob described with Hezbollah and Hamas and uh, Iran. They're distracted, so they're not really involved the same way. The good news is, Abraham Accords did have some effect. And Bob alluded to uh, to Saudi, but you also have Egypt and you have Jordan. They're taking pretty strong stands on no, we're not going to open our borders and let people through because that is a risk to us too. So it's it's painting Hamas not just by Israel as a problem, not just by the U.S. as a problem, but even the Arab community is going, we don't want that radical ideology in our in our nation either creating problems for us. So that's the positive news. Is this really the first time in the last, you know, 40 years that you sort of didn't have everybody within the Arab community just rallying against Israel instead of going, wait a minute, this is, there there are multiple layers here. We need to be real careful how we we go about trying to come up with a solution.
3: And, And, you know, and I was in Israel two years ago, and part of the discussions and some of the discussions with some of the regional powers is there was a level, and this is clearly predates October 7th, there was a level of Palestinian fatigue, which, you know, even the Saudis and other, you know, major brokers in the region were like, can we get onto economics? Can not we talk about other, uh, other issues? We're not going to solve the two-state solution. Let's work on other things that we can achieve, you know, some progress. So there was just a level of fatigue at dealing with the two-state solution. And now this has brought it back to the forefront of something that, um, you know, depending on the patients and how much they want to be invested that may have some serious conversation that it has not had over the past probably almost decade,
1: Peter, given all the tensions in the region, um, what is the impact to oil? Yeah,
4: you know, I'm often simple. I try and have one chart sometimes to explain a lot of things um, and more just as it encompasses a feeling. I think this is it's directly with oil, but I think more broadly, it's commodities. It's the refining of those commodities. We already talked about the refining of earths and critical minerals. And I've been doing a lot of in-person meetings where the one chart I bring up is just a chart of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And I bring that up because it's back to levels from the late 80s. And at that time, we had 225 million people or 230 million in the population. We're at 330 million. And I just believe it encompasses so many of the kind of issues that we're facing. When I look at oil right now, and we haven't even mentioned it, right, Iran is selling, it sounds like probably up to 3.5 million barrels of oil per day, mostly to China and to um, India. It's well above what they should be allowed to sell under sanctions. But clearly, we have been trying to keep oil prices lower, so we have turned a blind eye to this, and it's kind of awkward to come in and say now, hey, you're selling $2 million more than you're supposed to be, some large number. How do we stop that? And to me, it expresses some weakness. I think we saw you know, a year and a half ago, we begged the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia after having said they were potentially going to be a pariah state to pump oil. Um, you saw what happened with Venezuela, where we went and said, we'll work with Venezuela, but you have to have... Um, free elections. They said they would have free elections. Two weeks later, they said they won't have free elections, but we're still working them. So I feel like we have been very weak on our own in terms of we have this potential to be self-sufficient, not just in commodities, but in the processing of those. And we've let that slide. And somehow that has to become a bigger priority. I think in the near term, the risk to me is if Iran truly does get involved and we have to clamp down on their selling of oil, oil prices go up. And this is yet to me another reason, I think we've had a laundry list over the last six months to year, why we need a really good energy policy here that allows for sustainability over time, but ensures that we can produce our own things and the Strategic Mm -hmm. Petroleum Reserve on top of everything else. A lot of that had to be shipped outside the country to be refined because either our refineries were working at full capacity or didn't have the capability to process that type of crude. So I'm somewhat optimistic. I'm really excited this year, I think, This is going to be the year of energy and energy stocks and commodities globally, where we really see this effort to like, what are we doing? How do we produce this stuff? But I think first, there's going to probably be another shock to the system. And to me, where it'll be really interesting, and I'm very hopeful, the Saudis will step in and show kind of their commitment to the global broader economy by increasing production if we start clamping down on Iran. I don't think they do that until above 90, but that'd be a real opportunity for Saudis to step up and say, hey we're part of the global community we understand what's going on we'll pump up production and that'd be a really encouraging sign if they do that and we get there
3: if i could just ask peter a question too because i you know the other part is because this is an area that's wrought with instability and a lot of issues that are always percolating it seems like these perturbations short-term spikes and then it gets back to business as usual so you don't see this huge increase in the you know the price of oil um, because everybody wants to see normalcy of operations to some degree, the Chinese as well, because they're hugely dependent on oil out of the region. So anytime you have a conflict or something uh, along the lines of an October 7th, you get a quick perturbation, but then everything seems to settle down.
4: Yeah, I think we are a little bit lucky at this time that that came as oil prices were on the decline. There's a lot of concern about global demand. China's economy you know, had been such a huge user the fact that they seem slow. There's signs of some slowing down in the U.S. economy. All that's helped. So, you know, to me, commodity prices are always moving by the 5 to 10% moves in supply or demand to have an outsized impact. Um, so I think we've been lucky that we've gone through this whole kind of crisis while global demand has been okay and manageable. If we start seeing China tick back up in addition to any price pressure, then that's where I think you get these more sustainable um, problems. And also, I think our shale industry, some of the great stuff about the U.S. and how it's set up is you can turn spigots on fairly quickly and you can tap in or take money out, but that will also dissipate those resources fairly quickly as well. So it, we need, I think, a sustained demand pickup and a sustained supply problem. And that, I think it's got to be, you know, more like six months to a year where it's on the horizon, just like we kind of originally saw with Russia for it to have that meaningful longer term impact. But we definitely got a little bit lucky because positioning was all kind of offsides and oil. Everyone was too long and it was struggling. So I think that helped us a lot.
1: Let's move on to Russia and Ukraine, um, since we just touched on it as well. It's been described as a, um, a stalemate at this point, but obviously there's a lot of interesting developments um, not only when it comes to Western support, some of the strategic and tactical advances on the ground um, and with upcoming elections, I think there there's a lot of opportunity for the dynamics of that conflict to change over the next year. So uh, maybe General Ashley, can you talk about your point of view about how that conflict has has been evolving and uh, potentially could evolve in the coming um, year?
3: Yeah, I I think we're in for uh, more of the same in the coming year. Uh, You may see a little more aggressive um, artillery exchanges, at least on the Russian side uh, over the winter season. Clearly they've had the opportunity to get entrenched in this very broad defensive belt uh, that they put in place. Uh, The concern I would have right now is, you know, the Russians to some degree have moved to kind of a, um, a war footing in terms of their production, even though, We're seeing them reach out to the Iranians for drones, to reach out to the North Koreans for munitions. Uh, So I'm kind of, you know, I don't get to read all the classified traffic, so I'm a little in the dark with regards to moving to an industrial footing for production of artillery rounds, yet at the same time, they're reaching out to a lot of other powers. So it kind of tells me they're still having a problem reaching those kinds of levels of production to meet the kind of exchange that they wanna have on a daily basis. My bigger concern is that the Ukrainians are gonna have to ratchet back on their ability to engage in that exchange with artillery and direct fire, and they're gonna start focusing more on drones, but what they're looking at on the drones and some of those attacks that they'll engage in um, is stuff that they're doing indigenously. They'll start doing some production there, but they're still incredibly dependent on the West uh, for those productions of uh, munitions, uh, to make sure that they keep their you know their uh, stores full and able to engage. Uh, as we get into the winter cycle, um, again you're going to see some more fighting, but things will be more stagnant. My concern going into 24 is that you know the Russians have the ability to kind of lock down the territory that they've occupied right now. Neither side can win militarily, right? So the Russians can't completely overrun the Ukrainian government. But the Ukrainian government doesn't have the military worth to displace the Russians, and so that's why you've got a little bit of a stalemate. But even that stalemate, as you go from uh, kind of the the southern and the northeastern provinces, there's a little bit of a trade space in terrain, so it's not exactly stagnant in terms of how the forces are are, are operating. So, but watch them closely. The degree to which the European powers, the U.S., will continue to support. Um, you know, the Ukrainian government. And then the other dynamic there is manpower. Clearly, you have a very small population of manpower on the Ukrainian side. And I I should say, you know, people in general, because uh, there are women that are on the front lines that are fighting for the Ukrainians. But this is a much easier thing for the Russians to sustain from a manpower standpoint. So we're not going to see a resolution this in 24. Uh, Clearly, uh, Zelensky and the government cannot come to any way where they compromise you know um to start having negotiations you know the only time someone starts really having a negotiation is when you you readily accept you can't win and right now neither side has a perspective that they cannot win and so that's why i don't think you're going to see any kind of negotiations even with pressure from from outside uh, some of the western nations as well
2: yeah and i'd add to the uh, the non-military threat Uh, that I think Ukraine will get increased pressure from NATO and others is the the continued refugee problem. It really has sort of dropped below the radar screen, but when you've got millions of refugees that are still uh, subsiding on the European economy, that's all having to be unwritten by by the EU and by NATO, and and that is a sizable um, burden on them that we're not hearing a lot about, which I'm glad we're not, because that then just adds to That being a weak point that the Russians can try to try to leverage. But and we see it playing out in our own Congress right now as to, you know, are we how serious we're going to be about uh, us providing finances, not just to Ukraine, but, you know, eventually it's going to be the world providing finances for the refugees as well.
3: Yeah. And, you know, the other part of that is Putin clearly sees time is on his side uh, and he's watching closely the, you know, the 24 elections in the U.S., and will we continue to take a, you know, international leadership standpoint, or will we become more of an isolationist nation? And all that is subject to, you know, Americans going to the ballot.
2: Yeah.
4: And I would say, I think you're very right, Mastin, and, you know, starting to wonder more and more, like, it's almost taken a given, oh, people will come back, Ukraine will be fine if this gets solved. But I look at my family, one side of the family left Ukraine in 1917 or so during the Bolshevik revolution. They never looked back. On the other side, my grandfather and his two brothers were captured during the war. Two made the mistake of going back, so they were immediately sent to the gulags because anyone was captured, and my grandfather came over to Canada and never looked back. Now, not that the people who retain or return now would be sent to the gulags, but you start setting your kids up in schools, you start establishing a life somewhere, and you look at pictures back home, and you look at the infrastructure. I think there's a greater and greater risk that whatever Ukraine was before this and whatever path they were on will be hard to get back on track the longer this goes on, because why go through that effort if you've already established a life somewhere else that you're comfortable with?
1: I want to take a moment to focus on some uh, domestic questions as it relates to the military budget here in the U.S., Obviously, we are living during such uncertain times where um, there's a lot of friction all around the globe. Um, Curious on your point of view about how the military budget addresses the known threats that we're currently um, uh, confronting, but probably more importantly, um, how the military budget is going to address some of those untraditional and potential threats um, that are evolving year by year that the military may have to address. Um, General Ashley,
3: first with you. Yeah, I, I think my biggest concern for the budget is that the discretionary dollars that we have will, you know, continue to it's on a down, downward slope. Um, you know, we're making investments in major weapons systems. And I would ask, you know, everybody that's on the call here, pay attention. It, you may not have interest in this, but I tell you, we're in the season of posture statements. And so between the Senate Armed Service Committee and the House Armed Service Committee, if you really want to see an interesting discussion, watch the service chiefs and the secretaries as they go into posture statements in front of the committees to talk about where they're investing their dollars, what they need, and what the shortfalls are. Um, the budget in 24 clearly, if we're in a continuous resolution. There's all kinds of buying power that is lost. And I think the budget, the real tightness for the military and what they can invest in is going to really happen in 25, not in 24. Um, so that concerns me, but there's a, I don't think technology is ever going to be our shortfall. I think one of the things that as I think about the military right now is uh, the inclination to bring in, you know, folks to serve. We've seen the army, I think it was about 10,000 short in terms of recruiting. So one of the things is, you know, I think is our real differentiator between us and other militaries is our human capital. And so one of the things I think we really have to think about, it's not just the dollars and the budget, but it's our ability to bring in the best and brightest. I mean, because the military services are phenomenal and we're seeing, you know, growth now with the Space Force, which is, you know, kind of getting its legs underneath it as well, too. But um, the budget will be tight for the next couple of years. I think we're going to make the investments in the technology that we need, Um one of my concerns is, you know, the acquisition process is always just too slow. So we got to figure out how do we, you know, speed that up and how do we bring technology in faster? Because the big thing is we're having to think about now, it's not just hardware, it's but how do you cycle in software? And that's really, I think, going to be a game changer and differentiator for us in technology as we go forward. But the human capital is going to be a big piece of it.
2: And I would add to that, that no matter what the budget is, you know, if inflation continues, then all you're doing is eating the budget. So what the dollar value is may not be as important as what the economy's inflation state is.
1: I want to take uh, the last 10 minutes to address some of the Q&A from the audience. Um, We didn't discuss Turkey. Turkey obviously has been a very interesting player in the last two years as conflicts pop up around the globe. Um, They have their own domestic challenges. Um, and as a partner in NATO, it's been very interesting to see where Erdogan has landed on issues as far as not really aligning with the rest of NATO. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, General Robinson, any thoughts on how Turkey, um, the where Turkey stands as an ally of the United States and the West more broadly?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's been more about Erdogan uh, seizing the moment and the opportunity to leverage his influence and He's done well at that. He really has uh, become a, a bigger voice and a bigger vote in NATO than he was before by leveraging some of the points that he was concerned about. Um, and he picked them carefully because some of them, uh, there are other countries, to include the U.S., that, that would agree with some of his points. You know, like, you know, the, the PKK is, uh, typically speaking, a, a terrorist organization recognized by the U.S. So... I I don't think Erdogan has any intent of withdrawing from NATO. I don't think he has any intent of making NATO an an enemy. But I do think that he will continue to leverage his position to be able to have a bigger voice and have more influence.
3: So I agree with everything with regards to NATO. And, you know, Turkey is a critical partner in NATO. And so we don't want to do anything that, that pushes them out as well. Erdogan can be a little interesting and problematic at times, but he's also got... this kind of view of where they were back in the Ottoman Empire and the kind of the leadership role that Turkey had, um, and then really his role within the Islamic community. I think he wants to have more and be a vocal and be seen as a leader in the Islamic community. And there's this, you know, there's a little bit of a natural friction with the NATO Christian kind of based countries um, within Islamic nation. Uh, And, you know, I spent two years in Turkey from 97 to 99 and i saw some of those frictions not to the degree that we see now in the government but there was always a little bit of concern because you know turkey kind of turkish thrace sits in you know europe but it also sits in asia so it's an interesting physical location as well but uh, they'll be a key part of nato going forward and
2: this isn't new either it i mean they, we, we've had the turkey greek uh, greece issues for decades and so Actually, it's in some regards, this might be easier to handle than the, the Turkey, you know, Greece uh, issues that we had. We were trying to prevent the two of them from going to war against each other for decades. Yeah, yeah. just a,
3: a point of a little bit humorous, but the very end of my tenure in Izmir at the NATO headquarters, they thought they would work on that. So they brought in a Greek two star chief of staff. Um, that didn't last very long. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: And Peter, from an economic lens, um, Turkey has uh, there's some interesting implications for what's happening in Turkey.
4: Yeah, it's um, you know it's less concerning than it would have been a few years ago, but the country has issued a lot of debt. So they've issued about 72 billion dollars of U.S. denominated, or sorry, of foreign denominated debt out of the country. The banks have issued a fair bit of debt. So unlike some of the situations we're talking about, there is a fair bit of debt outstanding. A lot of it held by foreigners. So if they get into some turmoil, it could be troublesome, but it's nowhere near as bad. In 2016, Turkey was rated triple B BBB-. minus. Um, they're down to BA or B3 rating. So there's been this gradual erosion of their rating. So I think it's relatively enhanced that understand the amount of risk, but that's something I would kind of keep an eye on. And then the one thing that's been very difficult to tell is how instrumental has Turkey been in moving Iranian oil, other things, and keeping parts of the global economy flowing that maybe, quote unquote, aren't supposed to be flowing, but, you know, everyone kind of wanted it to. Turkey's been right in the middle of a lot of that, at least geographically, if not, you know, actually doing it. So it, would that disrupt anything? Would it deteriorate kind of this underground potential economy that we see? So I think that would be a risk that if something does to push them out, how they're straddling the fence, how they're doing various things could go away. And again, it just seems to me I, it's almost like a broken record, unfortunately, but Two things. One is geopolitical risk is kind of everywhere. I think people are talking about it, but not actually doing enough with their portfolios and everywhere it looks, there's just inflationary pressures because of the regions and the types of activities that are going around in the areas with the highest geopolitical risk.
1: Well, let's take a moment to look at some of the current geopolitical uh, risks that are evolving in our hemisphere. Uh, We had a question from the audience about Venezuela's announcement that they have the right to um, the oil in Guyana and that's their territory. General Ashley, any thoughts on um, that sort of threat, how that may evolve? Is it going to escalate or is that um, primarily posturing?
3: I think it's more posturing, uh, you know, for a domestic audience. Uh, Those claims have been in place for a long time. Uh, So Maduro is just kind of, you know, playing to his his base uh, in terms of showing his strength in the region. But I don't see any of that escalating anything of any consequence.
1: And General Robinson, we had a question about the um, instability in Ecuador. Um, any thoughts or comments on how that could evolve, and um, you know where the U.S. or um, you know our partners may assert themselves?
2: Yeah, I, I, same thing that Bob just talked about. Ecuador is the same way. They've there have been issues in Ecuador uh, as to how the population or how the the Governance and uh, some of the factions within the population uh, collide with each other. And so we it, it's just another example of Ecuador being uh, an unstable uh, governance uh, in the it's a good people. It's got good opportunities, but they seem to really wrestle with uh, what is their mainstream, what is their identity gonna be as a country as far as the democratic Republic or as far as the dictatorship, and on what sides gonna go? And it just ebbs and flows it seems like decade after decade.
1: Yeah. So in the last few minutes that we have, I wanna close out with some comments from um, all three of you about what are maybe some potentially unforeseen or maybe undervalued risks um, in the coming year. We obviously just, we discussed all the current, what we know and what we think is gonna happen with the current conflicts, but would love to know um, from your point of view, you know, what we should be looking at, where we should be hedging um, when it comes to geopolitical or uh, economic risk. General Robinson, let's start with you.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd probably go to Africa first and look at, you know, the. now I've had 14 coups and, uh, since 2020. And there are 21, I believe, Francophones uh, countries historically where, where French was dominant in that country and facilitating them. And France is certainly in a, a, the uh process of extracting themselves from any of those countries. Uh, I think that runs the the potentiality of increased number of coups. And at the same time, you have a heavy Islamic flavor that's being inserted in. You have both China and Russia want to insert themselves in. It really makes I think Russia, I mean uh Africa very volatile in the coming uh coming years. And it'll be a question of how much priority we put in it. Um I mean, it's it's even become problematic for us to to just get our our ambassadors nominated for African countries, let alone get them confirmed and get them in place where we can try to have some sort of influence. So, Africa's got huge potential; they've got huge capability. You know, for the, we're probably militarily better positioned in Africa than we've ever been. But as everybody knows, when you have a human rights situation, you know the first thing that we do by congressional law is we withdraw our military and we withdraw our ability to help that country. And and this is, all you can do is sit and watch it flounder and, and sort of spiral down. General Ashley?
3: Um, let me give you a couple of things just to add on what Maserone talked about. So we still have an al-Qaeda and ISIS problem. Uh, The French have pulled out of the Sahel, so now you have the risk of more ungoverned space uh, that's not being accounted for. So the kind of the CT threat, I think, is growing from Africa and the instability that's going to ensue from that. Um, The other part of that is we're in an El El Nino season. So if you like to track the weather, that's when the Pacific kind of the the pattern drops down, which means it gets wetter in the south. It gets drier and hotter in the north. Last year was record temperatures. Now with the factor of El Nino on that, think about what that's going to mean because that creates water insecurity. It creates food insecurity. So it's going to be an interesting summer as we watch the weather and patterns because that's going to have an impact on us. Missed disinformation. So think of all things elections in the information sphere. About a third of the population is going to go to the polls globally uh, over the course of this coming year. You know, Taiwan's the first big one on Saturday, but we'll see a lot more of that taking place. There will be a lot done to shape uh, those elections. General Nakasone, the Cybercom National Security Agency uh, commander made a comment the other day, they said, you know, Russia has plenty of bandwidth to mess with our elections coming up in the fall. So you're going to see that cycle again. And then really, you know, kind of all things cyber. So for all the companies and the corporations, you know, hopefully cyber is a key part of what's in your C-suite and discussions you have every day. You continue to see stories about the Chinese trying to get into U.S. infrastructure, Um, So that is a concern. Make sure that you're able to lock those things down and you're really aggressive in that space. And I think the other thing is, that my last comment will be from an artificial intelligence technology standpoint, um, it's taken off. I'm not sure what direction it's gonna go. We can't slow it down with policy. So there's gonna be a lot of breaking of things. There's gonna be good discovery and there's gonna be risk as we move ahead. Um, A lot of the concerns are more in the workforce what does this mean for my job and my way ahead and less concerns in the C-suite because they see efficiencies and learning and accelerating things that they do. So it'll be an interesting year for technology as well.
1: Well, Peter, will you close this out?
3: Perfect. I was going to go with
4: Africa. I do think there's opportunity in Africa too, if we get it right, they do have a lot of natural resources. So that both a real risk, but a real opportunity. I think on the opportunity side, India, how do we work with India? How do we deal with an India that's going to be independent that's going to do what's right for India and figure out a way that we can make it work for us I think Mexico is going to be really interesting over the next 12 months where there's the potential for either more support work one thing I really like is I'm hearing from more and more corporations who want to do business in Mexico but are struggling um, you know limited ability to set up factories so there could be a lot of pressure on all sorts of parts of Mexico brought to bear that really changes something there for the positive so that I'm looking for and then I doubt it's a 2024 issue but I'm going to talk about space I think space and some sort of issue up there where everyone's kind of relatively playing nice so far could change you know the international space station is you know scheduled to be decommissioned there's a lot of things going on and maybe it's kind of in the vein of cyber AI. And when we're trying to do these X reports, space is another area that I think we've kind of taken for granted. It's crucial to our everyday life. And we're, we've are we kind of been blasé about it. And I think we're due for some sort of negative surprise there. Probably not a 2024 one, though maybe I've been binge watching too much Netflix. So that's why I'm negative on what could happen in space. But I'm definitely getting increasingly concerned that we're not treating it
2: quite with the priority it should get. And Bitcoin is now on the market.
1: Gentlemen, thank you so much for all of your comments and your insights today Uh, to our audience, our clients and partners that took the time to join us for our first webinar of 2024. Thank you so much. If you have any follow-on questions, you can always reach out to your uh, relationship manager at Academy Securities or at info at academysecurities.com. We love to get inbounds from clients and partners. So um, as the world continues to Um, be a kind of chaotic place, please think of us first, and we stand by to support you all. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, and um, good luck out there.
0: Thank you so much, Rachel, and thank you to our listeners as well. As Rachel said at the beginning, this webinar is brought to you by the Academy Vets ETF, a veteran impact ETF focused on providing market-based returns while investing in mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities that support veterans, vets, with a Z, invests in residential mortgage loans to active duty service members and veterans, as well as loans to veteran owned small businesses. To learn more, please visit academyetfs.com or contact your broker. The Academy Vets ETF is offered by Academy Asset Management, the asset management affiliate of Academy Securities, a registered broker dealer. This is your host, Andy Robinson. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.